Really good to be with you today. I want to welcome those joining us from the Crossroads campus where I pastor over at Highland Park upstairs in the 01 service. It's very nice to be here today and share what God has laid on my heart today. It was in 1973 that a young movie director by the name of George Lucas wrote a 12-page science fiction script that was, that was, uh, that was marketed for 14 and 15-year-olds. The thing about George Lucas's passion in getting this 12-page script out was that no one in Hollywood thought the same thing that George Lucas did. Nobody wanted to pick up the script. No movie studio was willing to take the risk of picking up this film. Nobody wanted to do it. Finally, once his budget got pared back enough, somebody took the movie. He took a He took his own salary cut in that moment. The thing about him, too, is that there wasn't enough budget for them to purchase all of the visual effects and all the props that he wanted. So they ended up borrowing props from other movies. They ended up reusing props. The way that George Lucas wanted his uh, opening credits to go up the screen caused George Lucas to have to resign from the Director's Guild and incur a very steep fine. Uh, no one really enjoyed working on the film when he first started uh, filming. The thing about this thing is that George Lucas had a vision and a passion for something that was much bigger than what anyone else had seen. In fact, he not only had that going against him, but May 25th, the opening day for his passionate project, was the worst day on the calendar to open a movie. And so his first movie, Star Wars, opened uh, in 35 theaters, and word quickly spread that this is an incredible movie. And we see now one of the largest movie franchises of all time, grossing over $28 billion. Many of you, some of you, may have seen the latest of his that came out this year. And the reality of this film is that George Lucas was in a place where it would have made sense for him to throw in the towel, to quit, to become passive in the cutthroat industry of Hollywood. And yet, time and again, the vision that he had for the project and the passion that he had for it led him to do what most other people would not have been able to do. And he has this opportunity to quote this line to himself. So I read that he quoted this mantra to himself, and it was this. Your focus determines your reality. And what I find for all of us in here joining us is that a lot of times what God sees in us is greater than what we can imagine for ourselves. We are often short-sighted, not able to see things through to the end, and we naturally fall into moments of stagnation and satisfaction. What I'd like to share with you today is a challenge from the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to pull out your Bible or your device, and we're going to go to the book of Philippians chapter 4. And here we are together at the end of the year, the end of this year. This is the time where we think about new things and fresh starts and resolutions and we get to the cliche end of the year things. So I felt convicted to preach on something that would challenge us in our walk with God into next steps. 
What does it take for us to get to the next level? And so we come to these words in the book of Philippians chapter 4, the very final words that the writer, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, has for this church. And the words that he wrote 2,000 years ago are just as applicable then as they are, uh, they are just as applicable now as they were then. And we have an incredible opportunity to see an eye into the final encouragements of this incredible uh, man of God for the people that were there to hear it. So I would love to read those for you. It's Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard in me, put those into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. You see, in this moment, when the Philippians were hearing this, they were struggling with having joy and contentment in the gospel, in the good news. And so Paul is encouraging them, hey, you need these six encouragements that will help move you in your place in the gospel. Restore your joy, restore your contentment, and get you to a place where your roots will go deep. So that you can see God do something in you that you could have never seen yourself accomplish. And so for us, it seems, for me anyway, in my walk with God, there's times when I get to a place in my life where I feel like I'm okay in my walk with God. I have a certain knowledge of God. I have a certain understanding of what I'm supposed to do to walk the Christian journey. And so I pare back and I pull back and I get comfortable and I miss the important things that I'm supposed to be doing. And so I concentrate less on my relationship with God and it leads me to times in my life where I coast in my walk with God. And before you judge me, maybe when life's ebbs and flows hit you, you may relate likely to the fact that sometimes we hit these times of satisfaction and plateau. And this morning, I want to encourage us in the same way that the Apostle Paul encouraged the Philippian church to restore your joy and restore your place in your relationship with God. What does it take to get to the next level? Now, it was Fitz, uh, psychologist Fitz and Posner who, who were the first ones, first psychologists to bring to the public uh, eye what it takes for people to acquire skills. And they narrowed down what it takes for people to acquire skills into three phases. The first phase of acquiring a skill is called the cognitive phase. In the, in the cognitive phase, it's where we first learn a particular skill. We make lots of mistakes in this phase. We're not very skilled in what we do. Uh, we learn a little bit more how to be efficient and effective in utilizing that skill. The second phase is the associative phase. We spend a lot less time thinking about that new skill. We become a little bit more effective and efficient, and we think a lot less about that skill. 
And then the third phase is the autonomous phase. And in the autonomous phase, we spend little to no time thinking about that skill because it is something that is second nature to us. And it was about 10 years ago, I was reading a, a review on aircraft accidents, and it does sound about as interesting as what it sounded like when I just said that. I was reading a review on aircraft accidents, and the reality of aircraft accidents is that the majority of pilot-induced accidents don't happen in pilots that are new within a couple hundred hours of their training. Most pilot-induced accidents actually happen in pilots who have accrued more than 650 hours. There's a comfort, there's a complacency, there's a plateau that comes. Think about maybe when you first started driving. I know for me at least, I was all radar up when I first started driving. You're thinking about who's around you. You're looking in your mirrors. You're thinking about how fast you're going, where your feet are on the pedals. You're not thinking about the radio station. When you're first merging onto your first major highway, I remember I was all eyes on everything and it was so stressful. And then it doesn't take long before driving is second nature, and we rarely even think about it anymore. And the same is true in our walk with God. We become complacent, we become stale, we become plateaued, we become autonomous to the point where sometimes we feel like we don't even need God, we don't need ourselves, and the worst part is we don't even know it most of the time. And so on a day like today, when most of us are thinking about new things and fresh starts and what 2017 had for us and what the new year holds for each and every one of us, the new year celebration maybe tonight, for me, I was convicted by a verse in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 5. And it says this, the purposes of a person's heart are like deep waters But one who has insight draws them out. And I wonder for you, wherever you might be today, if you are dry or you are weary or you are stagnated in your walk with God, be honest with yourself. And I wonder if I could challenge you if there's something in you that needs to be drawn out, something in you that you are longing to have drawn out so that you can move to that next level. I want to I want to have us think a little bit about Jonah. Many of us know the story of Jonah. Jonah was the guy who went overboard on a ship and got swallowed by a whale and got spit out a few days later. But the reality of Jonah is this. That Jonah was running from God. When he got swallowed up by the whale and he got spit out, he went to go preach begrudgingly to his enemies, the Assyrians doing something that he did not want for himself, but something that God saw that was bigger than him for him to be able to accomplish. And do you know what happened when he preached to the Assyrians? The whole city turned to God. Now I want you to see what Jonah did in those moments following preaching to a city and the entire city comes to God. This is what Jonah does. In chapter 4 of Jonah, verse 5, we see these words. Jonah went out and sat at a place east of the city. Remember, he just preached an incredible message that the whole city came to Christ. He goes, he sits outside of the city. He sat in the shade and he waited to see what would happen to the city. See, Jonah became complacent and passive. We don't know exactly what is happening in these verses, but 
the reality is that he waited and he stopped and he did not do exactly, didn't lean into what God wanted him to do. And so he preaches the gospel, the city comes to faith, and now this is what happens even after that in verse 6. And the Lord God provided a plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed and Jonah's head on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Now, Jonah's argument is that it was indeed okay for him to be angry about the plant to the point that he wanted to die. And we like to look at this story. I know I like to look at this story and we go, Jonah, what are you thinking? Just do what God asked you to do. For us, on the outside looking in, many times we think of it as logical and practical. It seems like that's what you should have done very easily. And so we look at other people's mistakes and sins and brokennesses and it seems very simple to us, the fix that needs to be there. And yet... We look at lives like Jonah. We see it in Jonah. We see it in David. We see it in Adam and Eve. Why did they eat the fruit? We see it in Peter. It seems so much easier for us because it's so hard to see the purpose of the story while you are in the story. So the whole time we read through the book of Jonah, very short book, four chapters, and we see in this book God is providing for Jonah the entire time. God provides the whale. God provides the leafy plant. God provides the worm. God provides the scorching east wind. And God is teaching us something in this. That we don't always get the things that we feel like we need or we feel like we want. The things that make us comfortable are not always the things that God is providing for us in the moment because God is more concerned about our calling than he is about our comfort. So Jonah was angry to the point of the fact that he wanted to die about the plant and about the worm and about the wind. All the while, God is going, I need you in that city. I need you to do what I called you to come here to do but we are blinded, but he was blinded. He was blinded by what he wanted, by his comfort. And we often are blinded by our own comfort and our own complacency and our own autonomy that we are moved to do nothing because we are so concerned about our comfort. And God says, what about your calling? So for many of us, we find ourselves perched on a plateau. And plateaus are normal and necessary. We see them in creation all over. They're beautiful. And yet, for us, they're a place for us to get distracted, to get pulled down, to get undone. And the Spirit of God is calling us to the next things. And so we dive into this passage in Philippians chapter 4, where we see six encouragements laid out for us. We see this. We're supposed to think on what is true. We're supposed to think on what is honest, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, and what is admirable. 
There is something simple and yet profound in those things. There's nothing, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing out of the ordinary in these six encouragements. We look at them and go, of course they ought to be in our lives. In fact, the people that it was originally read to, the Philippians, would likely have looked at those six things and said, well, those are what the Greek moralists are telling us. That's what the secular moralists are telling us, to do these things. There's nothing, there's nothing spectacular about them. They're simple, they're logical, and they're practical. And yet clearly, then, as is true also today, the Philippian believers at that church struggled to live out those simple, practical, logical, moral principles. You see, Paul had unlocked something. Paul unlocked, not perfected, but unlocked something. And this is what he unlocked. That how we live follows from our mind. Our attitudes and our actions and our habits follow from what we think about. And so earlier on in that passage, just a couple of verses before that, in verse number six, we see this. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. In other words, don't be anxious. Don't worry. Because when we, when we focus on the wrong things, namely when we focus on the things that we're concerned with, the focus on the comforts of our own lives, and not on the calling that God's placed in front of us, the encouragements that we see throughout these uh, scripture verses and throughout the Bible, if we don't focus on them, likely we will be strangled by worry. And although it can be debated how theologically accurate George Lucas's mantra is, your focus determines your reality— what we cannot disagree with is the fact that our, what we are focused on in our minds will drastically affect the way that we live. And we can get so strapped by worry, holding us back from the very things that move us to greater things in our walk with God, to the next things, individually and as a church. And so what I'd like to do is just take a brief moment and focus in on those six encouragements that we just read in Philippians chapter 4 so that we can learn what it is that helps us to prevent plateau in our walk with God. So the first one is this, that we are to think on what is true. You see, all throughout the New Testament, we are encouraged that the Holy Spirit is the truth. And the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. And likewise, Satan tries to get all of us to believe that what is true is not true. He tries to give us lies. Let me just share with you a couple of the lies that Satan is often trying to convince you of, you and me. He tries to convince you that you are the only one being tempted in the way that you are. I remember the first time I heard that lie as a guy, and I go, you mean there's other guys that are struggling with the same thing? I would have never known that. You know, the other thing that Satan is trying to convince you of is that he is more powerful than God. He tries to convince you that following God is boring. He tries to convince you that church is not worth it. He tries to convince you that reaching people is not something that you could do. That renewing a community, oh, that's way bigger than any of us. He tries to convince you that prayer is not worth it, that leading a ministry is fruitless or too much work. And the list could go on and on and on. And we are to think on what is true. 
The second is that we are to think on what is honest or noble. Think on what is honest. And I'll tell you, when I started studying this, I was thinking this is the most simplistic principle that we should have in our lives. In fact, we have a four-year-old daughter and we are teaching our four-year-old daughter some of these basic principles of life. And one of them is how to be honest. I know for me, maybe it's true of you, oftentimes my mind wanders to whatever it is that makes my life maybe simpler or easier. And if I do that, oftentimes that's not the most honest path to go. And the reality is that we are, to be, we, are in, we are supposed to be encouraged to think on what is honest. The third is think on what is right. Oh, and there's certainly things that we interact with, that we think about, that are out of our control. But the encouragement here is that we are not to focus on things that, on, focus on things that are dishonorable, which in turn will control our thought life. It's really easy to be convinced by things that we don't have control over. Like time and again, we find ourselves not doing what God wants us to do, and we just resort to failure in that area. But God desires for us to fight against that. And he puts the responsibility on us to think on what is right. The fourth thing is that we are to think on what is pure. That we are to be set apart that we are to be different in the way that we think, in the way that we act, in the way that we talk. And the reality is that if we are not different in the way that we live, maybe that's a good New Year's resolution for you this year. Because we are to be different. We are to act differently. It's a, a, likely a reference here, though, to sexual purity. Because even though two, this is written 2,000 years ago, the same is true then as it is today, that when we look at these verses and we're encouraged to purity, the temptations are the same. The temptations are strong, and we are, we are tempted in sexual thought life. So we are to think on what is pure. And then fifth, we are to think on what is lovely. And I love this one. We are to think on what is lovely. That's not a word that I have in my normal vocabulary. I don't walk around and say things are lovely. Maybe you do. But one of the things that I focused on in this is that it also means think on things that are beautiful. Think on things that are attractive. And I, I had a hard time thinking of much more that is beautiful than what God has placed around us in creation. And yet our pace of life and the way that we live oftentimes gets us not to focus on what God has placed in creation. How lovely and beautiful and attractive it is that God woos us with beauty, that he woos us with sounds and sights and colors and mountains and incredible vistas and plateaus and scenes around the world that are mind-blowing because he loves us and wants to communicate to us how he woos us to himself. It was something about how God provides for us in creation. And recently I read the book, the Stephen Ambrose book on the Lewis and Clark expedition. I, I never knew much about the Lewis and Clark expedition except for what I learned in high school and elementary school. And what I realized is that when Lewis and Clark wintered, that second winter they were in North Dakota for whatever reason— that's, they decided to winter in North Dakota in 1804. I don't understand. But the reality is they were given a blank check from the United States government to purchase anything they needed to get them from where they were to the Pacific Ocean and back. 
and they cashed in. They had unbelievable provisions. They had everything that you could imagine for somebody in 1804 minus the iPhone. And I'll tell you, the incredible thing about this is that it wasn't the provisions that they brought that got them through that first winter or that second winter. The things that got them through, the survival, the fact that they were able to make it, the first expedition ever to make it to the Pacific Ocean was not because of the things they brought. It was because of the things that God placed in nature for them. Medicinally, to keep them warm, to keep them fed, to allow for them to make it through that winter and go all the way to the West Coast. And God is a God of provisions. And it's all around us. We miss it because we live in this century, in this day. But God is a God of provisions. It's lovely. It's amazing. It's attractive. It's beautiful that God has placed those things in creation. And then finally, the encouragement is to think on what is admirable. Think on what is admirable. Or uh, See, our temptation oftentimes is to lead us down a path that if we think it in our heads and we don't do it, we're okay. And that got me thinking of a verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22, where we read these words, that we are to stay away from the very appearance of evil. That means if something looks like it's not good to do, if it looks like it's sin, don't do it. That's an incredible challenge for us. And we are to think on things that are admirable. Doing things that maybe are hard for us to do. Because it moves us to the next level. Moves us off of of those stagnations and those plateaus in our spiritual walk. That all of us are prone to do if we're willing to admit it. And people want to be like people who are admirable. People love people who are admirable. You want to talk like them. You want to look like them. I'm not talking about how they dress or what car they drive. I'm talking about people like when, when you see somebody that's admirable, you go, that, that person treats people the right way. They talk to people the right way. Likely, maybe that is something that you desire in your life. And likely, some of you are in this room and you are admirable. It's one of the beautiful things about the church is we get to be around people who know and love God even though we are broken and we are sinful. And we have an opportunity today to turn our eyes to what draws us to God and away from ourselves. Because when we think about these characteristics, these six encouragements, we become less like us and we become more like Christ. I love that. Years ago, I used to fly airplanes, and one of, the, one of the important things about being a pilot is that you certainly, when you fly an airplane, your goal is not to crash into other airplanes. I hope that's natural. Okay, so you don't want to uh, have a mid-air collision. At any given time in the United States, there are over 6,000 airplanes flying at any given time, and there is, uh, there is something or someone out there that helps prevent aircraft accidents. So many of you likely, some of you have been on an airplane just this week, and there are so many provisions in place to prevent accidents from happening, mid-air accidents. In fact, air traffic control on a normal day has a very taxing job, 
And their job is to create space between airplanes. So there aren't midair collisions. And in that space, even on normal days, it's an incredibly taxing job, let alone the hundreds of incidences that happen every day so that they can navigate airplanes in a safe and timely manner, an effective manner to where they're supposed to go. And it was very easy when airplanes didn't fly at night and into the clouds and above the clouds to keep planes separated from one another. But now that planes fly in, in at night and in the clouds and above the clouds, there's something that air traffic control uses called waypoints. Waypoints are a navigational aid that are all over the world. Likely many of us don't even know that they exist, but they are the very thing that keeps you alive when you fly and prevents you from getting into a midair collision. Waypoints are, there are thousands of them all over the globe at different altitudes so that there can be separation between aircraft. And the reality is for us that we don't really know that they're there. We don't really recognize how important they are. But I would, I would say that they are vital to your survival. And the very things that we are talking about today on this last Sunday of the year, the very things that we're talking about today are those very things for your life. These are waypoints. They're simple. We don't think about them. They're logical. They're practical. We feel like we don't really need them because we're getting from where we need to be or where we are to where we think we want to be or where we need to be. The reality is we need waypoints. And I would say that the Bible is a waypoint. And throughout Scripture, there are waypoints. And if we can point specifically to our passage today, these are six waypoints in our lives that help us in our walk with God to navigate to the next level to prevent plateaus. You see, at the end of this passage, we are encouraged to think on these things. Thinking is action. It is something that we have to do. It takes energy to think on these things. And this list is just a suggestive list. It's not exhaustive. And that's why at the end it says, if anything is praiseworthy, if anything is admirable, think about such things. And so we have an incredible encouragement here this morning that we are to think on these things. But it doesn't end with an empty, an empty challenge to say, just think on these things. Okay, think about these things. It says, Try them out. Put them into practice. Let us know how it goes. Because in verse 9 it says, don't just think about these things. Put them into practice. And you know what happens? I can tell you what happens. You know what happens when you get to the end of that? In verse 9 it says, and the God of peace will be with you. It doesn't end there in verse 9. It goes to verse 11 and it says this, that I have learned in whatever, as Paul's saying, I've learned in whatever state I am that I need to be content, that I am content. Contentment is something that we need. The third thing, it doesn't just end there. In verse 13 it says, I can do, many of you likely have heard this verse, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Because we are listening and thinking on and practicing the waypoints that we need to take us to the next step. It doesn't end there. Verse 19, we see this. And my God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. He will supply all your needs. You know what's interesting about that? It means that we are needy. 
Five weeks ago, my wife and I uh, welcomed our second daughter into the world. And it, it's the second time we've done this, but it's incredible the miracle that it is when a baby takes its first breath. It blows my mind that a baby can go from not breathing air to breathing air, what it is, what it needs. And like babies need air. There's kids that need snacks after school. There's teenagers that desire popularity and friendship. There's young adults who want success in their careers, and the list can go on and on. God is intimately aware of your needs, but the deepest needs of our hearts are not money and success and friends and food and status, but by having satisfaction in Jesus alone. It's been said that this passage, verses 8 and 9, are the most succinct definition of Jesus in the Bible. And the more we focus our thoughts on these things, the more we focus our thoughts on him, the more we are satisfied by the riches that he offers. A soul satisfaction that moves us off of our plateau and on to the next things. Would you pray with me today? God, we are so moved by how you have given us waypoints. Those very things that allow for us to navigate relationships and work and family and money and our relationship with you and our relationship with one another and our relationship in the church and the reality of the desire of our hearts, God. I pray that it would be less about us, that it would be more about you today. God, as we pray, the end of this year, that you might move us, God, onto new things in this new year. The next level, a place where we are not satisfied with where we are, but God, we want to get to where we need to be. And I pray, God, you would be our focus, that you would be our joy, that you would be our contentment. In Jesus' name, amen.